Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel and chapter 5, and it is our goal this morning to finish chapter 5 as we look at God's Word uh, together. If you're visiting us, thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of our service this morning. Uh, Perhaps you came this morning and you don't have a copy of God's Word, you don't have a copy of the Bible, that's totally fine. We want you to have a copy, and so if you look under the chairs anywhere in front of you, uh, there should be a copy of God's Word, and Daniel chapter 5 is on page 695 in that copy of God's Word. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that one with you. We'd love you to have that free gift from us. We want everyone to know God and His Word. And so Daniel chapter 5, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 31. We started this last week, last Sunday, the first Sunday of 2024, and we noted the presumption of Belshazzar, this inferior king, this immature king, this king that has done nothing of note. His greatest claim to fame is that he can drink and party And yet he props himself up to be something that he's not and lives very presumptuously. Into this scene comes Daniel, or he will enter as we begin our reading this morning. Remember that Daniel now is in his 80s. Daniel came to Babylon as a man of about 15 or 16, but he is now in his 80s when he's brought before Belshazzar. So follow along with me, if you would, Daniel chapter 5, verses 13 through 31. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you'll be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of God. And so we have here in this passage one of many contrasts in Scripture between that which is wise and that which is foolish. Wisdom is the title for our sermon this morning. One of the ways we can define wisdom is, as we defined it during our sermon illustration for the children, is giving God his due weight, taking God rightly, seriously. Another way scripture puts it quite frequently is to have the fear of God, to give God the substance that he deserves, not just in our thinking about him, but in our living in front of him that God rightly figures largely in our decision-making, in what we think, say, and do, in our attitudes, and how we conduct ourselves. God looms large in that. He is a big part, a weighty part of who we are. Contrast that with the foolish. The foolish do not take God seriously. They do not give any weight, any credence, any substance to God and his word. To them, it is ridiculous. It's not to be taken seriously. And so they don't. They live life as though God and his word do not matter. They live as though God is not real and does not have great substance and honor and glory and majesty. And what makes it worse is when that is found in individuals who should know better. And that's what we have here with Belshazzar. Foolishness is always destructive, and it's hard. It's hard to look at a life that's being lived foolishly. It's difficult. But there's a deeper level of sadness when we look at a life being lived foolishly that has access to wisdom. God's wisdom is one of the greatest gifts that he can possibly give us to know why we're here, to know what our purpose in life is, to know what we're supposed to do while we're here, and to know what happens after this life is over, to be in relationship with the one who gave us existence, to know him, to love him, and to walk in his ways, empowered by and enlightened by who he is in his character. 
to truly be marked by humility and grace and mercy and holiness and righteousness and peace and joy and love and contentment and gentleness and kindness and all this and so much more. To actually live that way is a great, great, unspeakable gift, as Scripture says. Conversely, to live foolishly is so hard. It is so difficult. Whatever way the wind blows, that's what we believe and that's what we follow. Whatever is the latest fad of the day, whatever the seeming vocal minority on social media tells us we should believe and follow, that's what we do. There's no rootedness, there's no groundedness, there's no weight to any of that. It's weightless, frivolous. And yet so many live that way and Belshazzar is one of them. And so, in the first place then, we say that foolishness lacks faith. We were introduced to the queen mother last week, and again, she could have been a wife of Belshazzar, but since his wives and his concubines are there in the banqueting hall with him, it's more likely that this uh, queen was the queen mother, possibly the widow of the first Nebuchadnezzar, or maybe his daughter. But she has great faith, and we're going to expand on that as we look at the rest of this chapter. But Belshazzar's contrasted, he does not have faith. His fear is short-lived. Some individuals have sort of an experience where they're very, very afraid and they cry out to God, God, get me out of this and I'll serve you. And then that's quickly forgotten once the danger has passed. And Belshazzar seems to be in that category. He lacks faith and his foolishness evidences that. Verses 13 through 16. And so in the first place, we have this foolish insecurity. It's such a contrast between verse 12 and 13. And don't miss this if you would. Daniel's brought in before the king. It's crazy to me, again, that Daniel's been so quickly forgotten, but that's all of us, right? Like we so quickly forget the things that we ought to be grateful for. This Daniel who interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar the Great, this Daniel and his friends who walked through the fiery furnace, or Daniel's friends walked through the fiery furnace and and came out unscathed. This Daniel who had uh, interpreted a dream for Belshazzar's father and that dream had come true. This This Daniel, who should have been great in the kingdom, was almost an afterthought. He was sort of a footnote to Belshazzar. But notice how how he interacts with him. Notice how he addresses him. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Belshazzar well knows who this is. But just in case Daniel forgets the pecking order here, Belshazzar throws back into his face, oh yes, I remember you, you're one of the slaves that my father, Nebuchadnezzar, brought back from Judah. Oh yes, yes, I remember you, yes. You see the foolishness of the insecurity here with Belshazzar? Belshazzar, not five minutes ago, you involuntarily wet yourself, you were so afraid. And now, you're going to speak to Daniel? Daniel, that just by virtue of his age should be given some measure of respect. Daniel, who was great in your father and the king before him kingdom. Daniel, the one who was described to you in the way that he was in verses 10 through 12 with the queen mother, and you're going to throw into his face that he's a slave and you're the king? Really? In an unsanctified moment, if I was Daniel, I probably would have slapped Belshazzar in the face. Really? This is how you're going to address me? See, foolishness evidences itself in many ways, and one of the ways it evidences itself is insecurity. Belshazzar has no leg to stand on. 
He's a nobody. He's a loser. He's done nothing. Nebuchadnezzar the Great conquered many nations. His father, Nabonidus, built the hanging gardens of Babylon for his median wife, also conquered many nations. And we oftentimes forget in the dream in Daniel 4, we focus in on what happens after the trees cut down. But remember, and Daniel remind Belshazzar uh, prior, what is, what is the dream, what is the tree doing in the dream prior to being cut down? All of the nations come and find refuge and shelter in the tree. Nabonidus had greatness given to him by God. He had something on his resume. You look at Belshazzar's resume, it's mostly blank. Drinks lots, parties hard. Here's my email address. There's nothing here. But he's going to stand, even after God's hand, or a hand sent from God, writes on the wall and scares him so bad, he loses control of his bodily functions. And yet, how does he respond to Daniel? Oh, yes, I remember you. You're one of the slaves that my father brought back from Judah. Yes, yes, I remember you. Foolish, foolish. Notice the foolish doubt that Belshazzar has. Twice, what does he say in verse 14? I have heard of you. And what does he say in the verse part of verse 16? But I have heard that you can give interpretations. Contrast that with verse 12. What does the queen mother say? Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. The queen mother has great faith, no doubt. She's seen it. Belshazzar has also seen it, but he lacks faith. He has no trust in Daniel or Daniel's God. And so what does he say? Twice in two verses, I've heard. Rumor has it. The stories have reached my regal ears that maybe you might be able to do something. Do you catch? It's almost sneering here. This man is in no position to make this statement. When he saw that hand right on the wall, his knees literally smote together, the King James says. He was so scared. He went from top of the heap to the bottom in the matter of seconds. Then he brings everybody in, screams out in panic, get in here and see what's on the wall. They can't give him the interpretation and this abject helplessness washes over him. His color changes again and he is deeply afraid. And yet the only person in his kingdom that can help him, he's gonna attempt to bring them down. Because foolishness attempts to establish a pecking order, right? See, I'm up here and you're down here. Do you see that? That's what foolishness does. Deeply insecure, deeply racked with doubt. And so he simply says, I've heard. It's been told me. Rumors have gotten back to my ears. You might be able to help out. No confidence at all in the only one who can help. And then notice his foolish incentives. If you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, I'll clothe you with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you'll be third ruler in the kingdom. Foolish, foolish incentives. Childish, immature incentives from a childish, immature man. A man who believes in his own mind that he's much bigger than he actually is. This is made all the more foolish when you understand that Daniel knows that just outside the walls of Babylon are the armies of Persia. We were, during the sermon preview, as we met as elders, we were talking about this. I'd be like, I'm in a boat 
with another guy and there's a hole in the bow and it's sinking. And as the water rushes in, I say, as the captain of this ship, I would like to confer upon you the honor of being my first mate. What good is being first mate on a ship that's sinking? Like in five seconds, we're gonna drown. Like what, it's foolish. Besides the fact, Daniel's well aware of what happens to people who are connected with a kingdom when that kingdom is taken over by another. The whole reason Daniel's in this position is because in Judah, he's part of the royal family. He's in the line of Hezekiah. And so when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the best of the best, he takes the royalty, Daniel's taken. Who wants to be connected with Babylon when Persia walks in, right? Who wants to have the royal robes of a defeated kingdom? It's foolish, so foolish. And here's Belshazzar. Foolishness lacks faith. No trust in God. No treating God as serious. No giving God any weight. He still believes in this moment that he has control. He's got control of the situation. It's like, <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to be less in control of a situation at this moment than Belshazzar is but you'd be even harder pressed to convince him otherwise. You ever know anybody like that? So full of their own pride, so full of themselves, so full of their own estimation of themselves that you can't tell them any different? How many times have you been that person? How many times have I? Foolishness. And so in verses 17 through 24, we have wisdom. Foolishness lacks faith. Wisdom displays faith. Daniel is a great illustration to us of someone who walks in wisdom, who gives God and his word weight, who takes God and his word seriously. Again, take a snapshot of this moment in your mind, if you would. You've walked in on the scene, you have no prior knowledge of what's going on. And you see the king of Babylon, the greatest nation at the time in the ancient world, and he's addressing someone who is an exile from Judah. Who would you say is wise and who would you say is foolish? Just based on that snapshot. Most of us, I think, would see that, see power, glory, pomp, circumstance, royalty. We would assume that the king has wisdom. And we would assume that this lowly slave has foolishness. What does this guy know? Who is he? And of course, in the upside down but upside right world of God and his grace and mercy, it's the exact opposite. Daniel's not clothed in royal robes. But Daniel, in all of his humility, is backed up by God's greatness. He understands the core of the new song that we just sang, which isn't new, but new to us this morning. How do we fight? Do we fight like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? Draw our swords? No. How do we fight? We fight on our knees. We understand that God is the one in control of all things. Daniel's not shaken. Daniel's not unnerved. He has wisdom because he has faith in God and he displays it. In the first place then, in the first part of verse 17, we see that he has wise priorities. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. <clears throat> now, before we go too much further, understand the, the, the progression in Daniel's interactions with the monarchs. I love this. He's 15, possibly 16. New location, ripped away from his family. 
and he's asked to interpret a dream for the greatest monarch of the day. And what does Daniel do? He goes in in all humility and he interprets the dream. No pre-commentary, no post-commentary. This is the dream that you dreamed, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is its interpretation, and that's it. What does he do in chapter four, though? He's an older man. What does he do in chapter four? He comes in, interprets the dream, but then there is some post-dream commentary, right? This is new, and we highlighted that when we were there in Daniel. This is something that we hadn't seen yet. He's so moved by the dream and its interpretation, he would not wish this on his worst enemy. And he says to Nabonidus, Nabonidus, please, Nebuchadnezzar, please, turn from your wicked ways. Submit yourself to God. Because what's coming is awful. To lose your mind literally for seven years. Your rationality is gone and you are just like an animal. No, I don't want that for you. Here, his commentary comes before the interpretation and it's longer than the interpretation. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, I can't get inside Daniel's head. It's, speculation's always bad when you come to scripture. But there's something different here. Daniel's older, he's seen at least two kings come and go but there's something different even with Belshazzar. God has compassion on Nebuchadnezzar. and gives him this dream in, the, in this interpretation. God's under no obligation to let us know what he's up to, but he does. And he stretches out before Nebuchadnezzar the rest of history from Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus. Stretches it out for him. And hopefully humbles him. It took a couple times. There had to be a fiery furnace and a big... 90-foot image on the plains of Dura in, the, in there, but finally Nebuchadnezzar seems to get the memo. Then Nabonidus comes on the scene, same thing, and Daniel interprets his dream, but there's a humbling. You notice chapter 4 starts with the end and then ends with the end, and Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar wants to let us know, I now know who rules in heaven. We have no such scene here with Belshazzar. We have no, we have no, no um, confidence in his repentance. And Daniel seems to understand this. There's a little bit of a, an edge to Daniel in this. Belshazzar's lack of repentance and his lack of humility bothers Daniel, and it ought to bother us. And he spends a large portion of time commentating before he even gets to the interpretation. So no commentary Interpretation with some commentary at the end. Now we finally have a bunch of commentary before it gets to the interpretation. Daniel just pleads really with Belshazzar to repent, to see his error. I don't need your gifts. Give those to someone else. Especially because they're not much good. Because in a couple hours, they're going to be gone anyway. <laughs> you don't have... It's great to be the third ruler in a kingdom, but not if the kingdom no longer exists. But notice, if you would, wise compassion in the second part of verse 17. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. It's amazing how there's a power imbalance here, one that we would not fathom if we walked into that scene. Again, the king, the king is second in command. And his father has just recently been defeated in a battle about 50 miles south. He doesn't know that, perhaps, but 
he, he's second in command of the entire nation of Babylon. And you have Daniel, a slave. It does not appear from first glance that Daniel has any power or authority in this situation. But as it turns out, he is the only one who can interpret this dream. So what would you do with that power? Especially if you had just had thrown into your face that you're just a lowly slave and you may or may not be able to help out. How do we respond when individuals respond in foolishness to us? It's very easy to respond back in kind, isn't it? It's very easy to respond foolishly back in kind, but what does Daniel say? Even though I don't need your gifts, even though you are not repentant and you greatly lack humility, even though you are a very, very foolish man, Nevertheless, I will take compassion on you and I will give you the interpretation of this dream. Not convinced at this moment it's going to make any impact. Not certainly like it did for the two Nebuchadnezzars prior. However, I still will have compassion on you. May it be the same with us. It's a great pair of verses in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest he think that he's correct. And we look at that and say, Solomon, it's one thing to contradict yourself between chapter 1 and chapter 31 of Proverbs, right back-to-back verses. What are we doing here, Solomon? And Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, is not foolish, obviously. He's giving us good wisdom. When foolishness comes at you, do not respond in kind. When someone wants to drag you down to their level, do not jump down there with them. Then you just have two fools going at it, which is too much foolishness. Well, Solomon says, be careful. Don't answer a fool foolishly according to his folly because then you'll become foolish yourself. If you want this, take a screenshot of any interaction on social media, just random interaction. That's foolishness on display, generally speaking. However, what, what does Solomon say in the very next verse? But do not let foolishness go unchecked because your silence could allow the fool to think that he's correct. So answer him, but just answer him with wisdom and compassion. Daniel does that. Notice in the third place then, there's wise remembrance. This is something the queen mother has started. Daniel finishes it. Do you remember, Belshazzar, the most high God, verse 18, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. You've forgotten, or you've chosen not to remember <laughs> Everything that Nabonidus had and Nebuchadnezzar before him all came from the Most High God. And Belshazzar, you know that. You know that because it is no accident or happenstance. It is not coincidence that the vessels you called for to drink wine from with all of your lords and ladies weren't just any God's vessels. They were Yahweh's vessels of honor from the temple. You know this, Belshazzar. You should know it, and you should act in light of it. The power that he has in verse 19, but notice in verse 20, when his heart was lifted up, and you can't help but understand that Daniel's saying, like yours is right now, Belshazzar. What did God do to him? He humbled him. Verse 21, he's driven from among the children of mankind. We know this from chapter 4. 
And in some of the most scathing commentary, what does he say in 22 through 24? And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. This is probably the key verse of the text. Belshazzar, you knew this. You had a front row seat for this. What'd you do with it? Nothing. You treated God as if he didn't matter. You treated God's word as if it didn't matter. But worse than that, you actually tried to act as though you were greater than that very God. Because the only thing that you can do is party. And so in that party, you attempted to bring God down below you. It's not something you can actually do. And God showed up. That's what he says in verse 23. You lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and praised all these false gods. But notice the end of 24. The God in, or sorry, 23. The God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. Please understand this. There is someone who has given you life. That is a great gift. But you owe him allegiance, worship, accountability for that. The problem is you can't because we are sinners. We hate authority. We hate God. We don't want to recognize him. We want to be God. All of us inside of us have a little Belshazzar, some of us a lot. We are the gods of our own world and existence, the small g gods. We say what goes and what doesn't go. We decide, or so we think. And so God in his great mercy and compassion could have left us there, but he did not. And he did something unlike anything else he became one of us. He condescended from his place of glory to put on human flesh, to walk among us, Jesus Christ, the righteous, to live the righteous life that we cannot live and don't want to and can't. He did it for us. And then he went to that cross and he gave his life and shed his blood for us took on himself the penalty for our sin and then rose to life again the third day. That's why we gather on Sundays, Resurrection Day. He is risen, not just on Easter. Proving that he conquered sin because he conquered death and now offers to us what theologians call the great exchange, his righteousness for the penalty of our sinfulness. This is love beyond our capacity to fathom. This love Daniel knew. This love Belshazzar knew and rejected. Do not be like Belshazzar. Do not treat God as if he doesn't matter. Do not treat God as if he's a light thing. God is weighty and substantial. He is the sovereign of the universe. And we would do well to remember that, something that Belshazzar did not do. And so the wise boldness of Daniel... You have not humbled your heart, Belshazzar. You knew all this. You watched it happen. You watched your father lose his mind. 
and you listened as your father gave credence and allegiance and praise and honor and worship to the Most High God. You heard it all. And it was that God that you chose to belittle. It was that God that you chose to disregard. It is sad when anyone does not worship God. It's sadder still when someone who was surrounded by the worship of God grew up exposed to the worship of God, sees examples of those who do worship God, turns their back on it, and walks away. It's deeply sad and grievous because that's a level of foolishness that is difficult to describe. You were there. You saw it. You turned your back on it. And this then is the third point. Foolishness denies God. This is the interpretation. This is what the writing is. Now we might go hard at the enchanters and Chaldeans. We did a little bit last week. Should have probably lost their job. Uh, strike three and you're out. However, although these consonants are in Aramaic, the vowels are not supplied, which makes sense because ancient Aramaic, like ancient Hebrew, does not have the vowels supplied. So the question is, what are these actual words? And even if we know what the words are, we're not exactly sure then what they mean. If you provide different vowels, mina, tekel, parson, they could mean, in our parlance, tuni, loony, 50 cents. That's actual coinage from Babylon, if you supply different vowels. So these enchanters and Chaldeans are like, so a hand came all the way from God to loan us some cash? I, this makes no sense to us. But if you provide different vowels, it means numbered, weighed, divided. And again, even if you have those words and you provided the right vowels, it's still, what does that mean? Numbered, weighed, divided? That doesn't make any sense. So Daniel says, this is the interpretation of the matter, verse 26. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And we know that. As Daniel's giving this interpretation, the Persians are damming up the Euphrates River north of the city of Babylon and are walking in underneath the walls. The walls of Babylon that could hold two four-horse chariots side by side on top. The Persian army's walking right under that. And according to antiquity, on October 12, 539 BC, the Persians took over the city of Babylon and no blood was spilled other than Belshazzar's. Time's up, Belshazzar. Belshazzar's living like he has all the time in the world. And God's hand comes all the way from heaven to say, you're finished. Verse 27, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And this is perhaps even scarier. The one thing to know the day of our death, that would be hard to take. It's an entirely different thing to know that we're going to face the one who made us, provided his grace for us, whom we rejected. And we're going to leave this life to face his judgment in the next. That's a weighty thing indeed. Something that Belshazzar has not taken seriously up to this point. Peres or Parson, we can see that even in ancient Aramaic, the root for Persia, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, which is literally just about to happen. It's hours away, if not minutes away. Foolishness lives in denial of God. God doesn't exist. It doesn't matter to me. It's so foolish, especially when we have been exposed to the truth. But wisdom submits to God. 
Verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. It's interesting here, there's a couple things going on at least. How does Belshazzar know that Daniel's given him the proper interpretation? So Nebuchadnezzar in chapters one and two, he's smart enough to go, I had this dream you guys come in, don't just tell me the interpretation because you can cut up a few birds and look at some entrails and make something up. Tell me what I dreamed and what the interpretation is that I'll know. And Daniel does. Nabonidus doesn't know whether or not Daniel's told the truth, but he does give the interpretation of the dream and a year later, 12 months later, it comes to pass. So Nabonidus now knows, yes, it's true. Belshazzar has no way to independently verify that what Daniel has just told him is true. And yet there seems to be a resignation here of some kind. There seems to be something even in Belshazzar. It's not repentance, but he see, he's almost seems to know that it's true. <laughs> Mark it down. The people that seem most confident, the people that give you their resume before you even ask, even after you ask them not to, the people that are partying the hardest, the people that seem to have life by the tail, almost exclusively are the individuals who are the most insecure and fearful. Belshazzar almost knows that this is true. Almost believes that it's real. And he almost begrudgingly just does what he said he would do. But notice Daniel submitting to God. What good does a purple robe, a chain of gold, and this title conferred upon him do when in a couple hours it's all going to be gone? Fantastic. You've run shares in a company that is about to go belly up and bankrupt. This is great. What a great day. I actually owe money now. This is fantastic. I love it. This makes no sense. But worse than that, as I said at the outset, Daniel knows what it means to be associated with one kingdom when it's taken over by another. And yet, what does Daniel do? He submits. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. Some say that he took his own life, depending on who you listen to. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. A swap of kingdoms, bloodless for the most part. And all while Belshazzar was believing that he could party hard long into the night, and to the next day, and the next, and the next. So the response that we should have then this morning is, do we consistently fear God? If you're here this morning and you're living life as though God doesn't matter, I'm here to remind you that he does. God is real. And he's weighty and substantial. There was nothing and he spoke and it all came to be. We ought to take him seriously. We ought to take what he says seriously. We don't know how much time we have, and we know when our time in this life is over, we will meet him, stand before him. Our only hope, then, is him. That should not cause us to run from him, but to him, and in our knees, on our hands and knees, submit to him. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Or perhaps you're here this morning and you believe that. You've submitted to God. You count him as worthy. You count him as substantial and weighty. Does your life evidence that? Does your finances and how you use them evidence that? Does your service and the riskiness or non-riskiness of it evidence that? Do those who know you know that? Are we like Lot, who when he approached his future sons-in-law, they laughed at him because the idea of Lot taking God seriously was a very unserious proposition? Or do people know that we take God seriously? We do not want to be foolish, I hope. I don't think anybody wakes, woke up this morning and said, I want to be a fool. I hope we want to be wise. Wisdom has faith. Wisdom submits to God. Wisdom fears the one who is sovereign over all. Let's look to him in prayer this morning as we close. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your goodness to us. Thank you for these types of examples. Your word does not sugarcoat the reality. It gives it to us straight. And we have here a petty, immature, foolish, little king who's trying to build himself up to be something that he is not. Father, I pray that you would help us to right-size this morning, that you are big and we are small. And yet, in you, we have everything. We have a relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. We are loved by the one who holds all things in his hand. As our late friend Tim Keller says, only a child has access to the king at 3 a.m. to ask for a glass of water. We have that kind of access because we are children of yours. May we live in light of the fact that we are both sinners and saints. We are nothing in ourselves, but in you, we are sons and daughters of the Most High. That should not engender in us pride, but it should give us great gratitude and humility. May we live out in fear of you every day, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.